0: Coming up on Naked Age, the mother of Hallover tells us how to establish a legal nude beach.
1: We gave them our legal information and told them, if you don't agree with this and you can show us where we would be breaking the law, tell us now because we're going to start using it on the weekend of the 14th of July, 1991. If you come up there and arrest us, we'll have to sue you.
0: (laughs) The hostile takeover of Hallover Beach. Plus, a brief history of nude beaches in Puritan-besmirched America. Coming up right now on Naked Age. Stick around.
2: This episode of Naked Age is supported by
1: a sponsorship grant from the American Association for Nude Recreation Education Foundation. Learn more about the Anner Education Foundation and their mission, or make a donation at
2: aanr-ef.com.
0: Welcome to Naked Age, a nudist history series exploring uncommon stories and profiling unique people who have gone to extraordinary lengths to live a nude life. I'm your host, Evan Nix. In this episode, we'll meet Shirley and Richard Mason, two pioneers of the U.S. beach movement who created the model for launching a legal nude beach when they boldly established residency on Florida's popular Holover Beach. This is Naked Age. How does a beach become a nude beach? In a 1976 issue of Lee Baxendahl's progressive political magazine, Green Mountain Quarterly, nudist Cease Cinder, a founding member of Beachfront USA and author of The Nudist Idea, recalls a pivotal clothes-free moment he experienced on a California beach nine years earlier.
2: I stood on the cliffs above San Gregorio, on the Pacific side of the San Francisco Peninsula, and looked down on America's first genuine free beach. Of course, clandestine skinny dipping had been going on for years, for generations, forever on both shores. But here was a nudist beach out in the open, crowded with about 80 people of both sexes, the majority of them completely nude, The naked human beings down below on the beach were being observed with quiet curiosity by an approximately equal number of spectators atop the cliffs, many of them toting field glasses. There were no cops, there were no rowdy bikers, the panorama was a placid, peaceful one, and I had my proof before me that there was no good reason why free beaches weren't feasible even in Puritan-besmirched America.
0: See Cinder's recollection of the nudists at San Gregorio Beach in this excerpt performed by his daughter, Arden Williams, hints at how most of the free beaches in North America were established. It's a simple formula. A couple free-spirited people find a spot on a remote stretch of beach and take off their clothes. Soon, a few others join them. Word gets around, and before long, a little community of naked people begins to take shape. It's how McGregor Park in Austin, Texas, became a destination for 1960s counterculturists, leading it to be rechristened as Hippie Hollow. It's how the secluded Gunnison Beach in Sandy Hook, New Jersey, became the most popular nude beach in the Northeast. It's how Jacob Reese Park, a popular LGBT gathering space in Queens, New York, became a beach where nudes go unnoticed, in the words of one guidebook.
3: What brings you to this nudie beach?
2: Uh, sister Beach was freedom for all, you know. That's what I think a lot of people want to do, just hang out. And, you know, they want to be nude, they want to be gay, they can do what they want, and nobody cares. And that's why it's bad having people come here harassing.
0: These examples provide a model for how a nude beach may come to be. Let's call this the organic model. In terms of establishing a beach, the organic model is tried and true. But like other organic things, these beaches tend to have a lifespan. Once an organic nude beach becomes popular, it's often already doomed.
3: A naturalist group is asking beachgoers to ditch their clothes and bring signs this weekend to San Onofre's Trail 6. The announcement came a day after officials with the State Department of Parks and Recreation said they would begin citing nude sunbathers at the traditionally
0: clothing optional beach. Even if your nude beach is lucky enough to be embraced by local law enforcement, it still faces threats from neighborhood groups, development agencies, ambitious politicians, and others. Of course, there is another model for establishing a legal nude beach. A model that accounts for these threats. But employing this model is not for the faint of heart. As you'll see in this episode, it often requires organization, creativity, and bravado. Today, we will explore what it takes not just to establish a free beach, but to safeguard it, to help it grow and even to see it flourish into a cherished part of the local community. And we will examine one beach, specifically Hallover Beach in Miami, widely considered to be the best nude beach in America, and that beach's roadmap for success as laid out by its actual architects. But first, of course, some history. California nude beachers like Sea Cinder had a variety of locations to choose from in those early days. But they were generally small, hidden-away spots where groups could quietly gather without attracting the attention of law enforcement. This began to change in 1972, when the California Supreme Court struck down the prosecution of Chad Merrill Smith, who had been arrested for sunbathing nude on a Southern California beach, The court's ruling that Smith could not be prosecuted for mere nudity without lewd intent set a new precedent for the prosecution of recreational nudists in California. By the summer of 1974, the explosion of nude bathers at Venice Beach was enough to inspire the L.A. City Council to pass an anti-nudity ordinance in a 12-to-1 vote. The ordinance was challenged, but ultimately, it stuck. That same year, in 1974, just down Interstate 5, the San Diego City Council voted 5-2 to to legalize nudity at Blacks Beach, making Blacks the first legal nude beach in the United States. But just for three years, at which point San Diegans passed Prop D, banning nudity on the city-managed portion of the beach. Clothing remained optional on the state-run portion of the beach, though it is not technically legal even today. On the East Coast in 1974, efforts to ban nude bathing on the Cape Cod National Seashore, pushed largely by a small local group called the Truro Neighborhood Association, drew the attention of a 39-year-old author, playwright, and political activist named Lee Baxendall.
4: Cape Cod's beautiful and extensive outer beach has been used for centuries for skinny-dipping by the natives and visitors, It was to considerable surprise of many then that the Cape Cod National Seashore Administration moved against the traditional practice. It happened after the Truro Beach had started attracting crowds of clothes-free bathers, sometimes in excess of a thousand on a single day. Many of the new bathers drove in. That shouldn't be surprising, after all it is a national seashore bought by the taxpayers of the entire nation and administered for their recreation rather than the citizens of the nearest community. But the citizens in the nearest community had managed to get a special privilege for themselves. You'd think the National Seashore Administrators would put their foot down and demand that the Truro Neighborhood Association recognize the right of American taxpayers. But no. That's how the Truro Neighborhood Association hotheads were able to cook up a false issue.
0: The Truro Beach situation led Baxendahl to form the Free the Free Beach Committee in 1975. He organized an East Coast National Nude Beach Day in 1976, the same year he began printing the Free Beaches newspaper. The June 1977 issue of Free Beaches includes an extensive list of nude and clothing-optional spaces, including Blacks Beach, Canaveral National Seashore, Lighthouse Beach, Hippie Hollow, Rooster Rock, and Hanlon Point. Baxendall proclaimed,
4: This is the best gathering of its kind, attempting a continental scope to our knowledge. 277 places of some significance in all, representing 39 states and three provinces. We never thought we would get this many states, this many different sites, and most are used by a number of people. Do bear in mind that listings may not be free of error and conditions may do change overnight. A beach free of problems with police may develop them. Another beach accustomed to furtive behavior may be relieved of anxiety by a new official in charge.
0: Both of these excerpts of Lee Baxendahl were read by Lee's son, Phineas Baxendahl. By the end of the 1970s, free beaches were popping up across the country. As they did, The work to protect, maintain, and preserve them became more organized and nude beach activists discovered the necessity to coordinate with local lifeguards, rangers, law enforcement, and elected officials. Volunteers helped keep the beaches clean and free from crime, and a few even had an informal mayor, or in some cases, a mom. One such mom was Mariana Handler who moved from Germany to the United States in 1956. Along with her husband and two young daughters, Handler became a regular at Rhode Island's Moonstone Beach. Handler relocated to California in 1987, where she quickly became involved with efforts to protect nude bathing on San Onofre Beach.
3: At that time, the beach started to become known and more populated. The rangers left us alone most of the time. But one sheriff out of San Diego was hell-bent to close down the nude beach. The sheriffs stood on top of the cliff and took photos of the nude sunbathers and came down to the beach to arrest them. I was told that the nudists used to exchange towels and caps so the person in the photo could not be identified when the sheriffs came. It became a game, but it bothered me that we always had to look over our shoulders. Rumors kept going around about attempts to close the beach to nudity. I finally decided to see the superintendent of the state parks in that area and established a good rapport with him. At the gathering at Elysium that year, Lee Baxendahl urged me to become more proactive and I started Friends of San Onofre Beach. I began a newsletter and distributed it liberally at the beach along with the Free Beach etiquette. Slowly, the crowd there started to pull together and speak up. I became known as the Beach Mom.
0: That excerpt from the spring 2010 issue of Nude and Natural was voiced by Mariana's daughter, Maureen Handler. While many unofficial nude beaches emerged in the 1970s, nearly all of them began to vanish beginning in the 1980s. In 1983, Nudity was banned at Jacob Reese Park In 1987, officials closed access to Moonstone Beach In 95, Travis County passed an ordinance restricting access to Hippie Hollow to those over the age of 18 In 2010, police began issuing citations to nude sunbathers at San Onofre State Beach's Trail 6 In 2016, the Wisconsin Department of Natural Resources abruptly closed Mazo Beach Perhaps nobody has seen more free beach closures than Florida, which since the 1980s has seen their number of public nude recreation spaces go from over 100 to just four. This is remarkable for a state which is home to more nude recreation and nude tourism than any other in the U.S. A state where topless sunbathing has famously been legal, at least on Miami Beach, for almost 40 years.
5: All right, you've made it to the beach, and you finally got up your nerve. You bought your best-selling novel and, of course, your sunblock.
1: And then you wonder, is this legal? That it is not illegal to be topless on the beach, and our police practices are simply to, to have a tolerant attitude about this.
0: The topless sunbathing on Miami Beach began in 1986, when a 250-member group called South Florida Free Beaches and their president, Tom Chittenden, successfully lobbied the Miami Beach City Commission to repeal a law prohibiting nude sunbathing.
1: But Miami Beach police might not be as tolerant if you drop your bottom. If
3: somebody did go topless, uh, and bottomless today on the beach, uh, we would ask either the lifeguards or the police officers to discuss with them that that that's
2: not viewed as appropriate here on the beach and to please uh, put their bottom back on.
0: For Chittenden, the topless beach was only the first step. What he and the members of his organization really wanted was a legal, family-friendly nude beach. However, there were many roadblocks, and for every victory South Florida free beaches saw, more blows were dealt. Miami Beach was just one municipality, and in Florida... Where there was no state law against nudity, the laws varied by city or county. And with new ordinances banning nudity being introduced around the state, taking political action could easily require significant resources for lobbying and advocacy. Lacking resources, a group like South Florida Free Beaches would have to be incredibly crafty. They would have to know the law to be clever enough to know how to navigate endless challenges, and to be bold enough to do so against great odds at times. Perhaps most importantly, they would have to know people. This is where our heroes, Richard and Shirley Mason, come in. An unlikely couple from different backgrounds. Richard from an Irish-Italian family of seven in Boston. Shirley from a middle-class family of color in Duluth, Minnesota. They met and began dating in 1978, just a decade after Loving vs. Virginia, in Miami, a city which had a long and unpleasant history with segregation. Having worked for years as a sales manager for a utility company, Richard claims to have known everybody in Dade County. I can't confirm if that's true, but he is certainly well connected. He served on the board of directors for the Hotel Association and the Restaurant Association. Shirley was a charismatic interior architectural designer who had studied business and was a member of the Builders Association. As members of South Florida Free Beaches, the couple would help to transform nude recreation in Florida when they boldly staked claim to a northern section of Hollover Beach at first without official sanction from the city or parks department, using the 10th and 14th amendments as their argument. Over time, they transformed the beach from a desolate area of public park to a major tourist destination, which hosts over 1.4 million visitors a year. Over the last three decades, Shirley and Richard Mason, and others, have led the effort to serve Holover Beach with both South Florida Free Beaches and The Beaches Foundation, a 501c3 organization Shirley founded in 1999. Shirley and Richard Mason created the model, the Holover Model, a model for how to establish a protected nude beach and to foster a culture there of respect and adherence to true naturist values. Over an amazing career of activism for nude beaches, Richard and Shirley have collected stories and lessons and together have developed a wholly original point of view on the fight for nude rights and creating legal, accessible, nude-friendly public spaces. And I was blessed recently to get to speak to them both on separate occasions over Zoom from their home in Miami Beach, Florida. Tell me how you both met.
1: We met through the Builders Association of South Florida I was the builder rep for a custom design closet company, and Richard was sales manager at the local gas utility.
5: I was involved with the Downtown Business Council, uh, I was on the board of the Restaurant Association of Greater Miami, Greater Miami Hotel Association the Builders' Association. I knew everyone everywhere, and I, I usually volunteered to work the table when people came in to check in, and that gave me the ability to meet everybody and know everybody. When Shirley showed up, one time, I was like, wow, a, a black person, you know? And all those committees and all those chambers and different associations, there was never a black person ever showed up at any of them. So uh, my nature is to welcome people, and so on, and uh, and so that's what I did. That was the beginning, I guess, of uh, of this relationship.
1: Richard went to the head of one of the teams I was on, which he knew very well, and he said, "Put me on the team, you know, that Shirley is on, so we can work together," which meant we would dr- drive around particular area and call on different businesses, trying to recruit them to join the Builders Association. And so by the end of the day, in doing that, you know, we kind of liked each other and started, you know, seeing each other casually.
0: What year would that have been?
1: That would have been about 1978.
0: And at that time, were you both already nudist naturists, or was that yet to come?
1: Well, in the formal way, that was yet to come. But in the informal way, I was because I started my skinny dipping experience, and Richard did too when we were children. went to a girls camp in Minnesota where I'm from and it was a summer camp and the big thing they kept kind of building us up to was one day we're going to do this special thing and that special thing turned out to be skinny dipping (laughs) and (laughs) so we all got to run down this you know ramp into the lake and take off our clothes and just you know, enjoy the water that way. Prior to that, we always had to wear our bathing suits. I just thought that was the greatest. It was a
5: wonderful feeling. As a young kid growing up in Boston in the 30s, and we were just a block or two from the bay, from Boston Harbor, and my brother and I would go down there and we would just strip down to our undershorts and jump in the water. Later we learned of another area where you could go without being seen alongside some railroad tracks. So my brother and I would go there in the summertime and jump in, take off all our clothes and jump in the water. We never thought anything of it or any big deal. I was a typical Irish, Italian, Catholic guy that was shy about my nudity. I grew up in a, in a family I uh, five children. I never saw my parents even in their underwear. Being nude was never considered sinful or wrong. It was just, it, you were nude when you took a bath and you weren't nude when you were in the living room. You know? So there was no condemnation of nudity. When I was in the army, I got out, I had developed severe plaque psoriasis over 60, 70, 80% of my body's from different times. When I got down to Florida, I got involved with the Veterans Hospital System. And the only treatment they had at the time was cold tar and alchivariate light. I would go into a room and a nurse would get this Coal tar, which was like axle grease, and wipe it all over my body. And then I would stand in the light after two hours of that stuff being on me, and sometimes six hours, I would get in the light box nude. And in between the light box and where you undressed was two or three tables that the nurses sat and had their lunch. So you had. <laughs> run by these nurses, stark naked. So you know, after a while, you sort of get immune to the situation, you know, it is what it is. Now forward to about 1980, I had met Shirley and we would listen to radio one day and we heard people from South Florida Free Beaches on a talk show talking about Virginia Key and you know, nude, sunbathing there. And at that time, I was going to the VA hospital every day at 5.30 in the morning for ultraviolet light treatments and doing this over five, six years every day, so I was getting my skin pretty well burnt up. The doctor said to me one day if you can find a new beach to go to and do that on the weekend you wouldn't have to come here every day because the natural sun would be better than the ultraviolet light so i asked him for a prescription in case a cop stopped me i could say i'm here on the doctor's orders or a prescription for a new sunday but anyway uh, we contacted south florida free beach from that radio show and about the time we started going to Virginia Key, maybe a year or two later, the city of Miami took over the land there. Everything was cool until the Mariel Boat Lift happened.
2: The Freedom Flotilla has poured almost 65,000 Cuban refugees ashore in Florida, but there still are thousands left in Cuba who want to leave, and the Castro government is doing all it can to encourage them. Charles Gomez reports from Marial Bay, Cuba.
1: Castro let out his criminals and put them on the boat and shipped them over here for us to deal with. Several of them started hanging out at the nude beach where we were, and they were really causing a lot of problems. When that happened, the city decided to enact their anti-nudity ordinance and said that we were the attractive nuisance and instead of getting rid of the criminals (laughs) they told us that we had to either get dressed or get out wow so we sued them which was a very interesting case you mean the
0: south florida free beaches beaches,
1: yes sued them And um, we had this very young attorney up against, you know, a long table of attorneys from the city of Miami and Dade County, including, you'll recognize his name, Janet Reno. Yeah. Unfortunately, the leaders of South Florida Free Beaches at the time, plus the attorney, decided they would use the First Amendment as their argument. And that did not fly (laughs) with the judge. She said, I can't see 30, 40 nudists hanging out on the beach, talking politics on the right of being nude and whatever, demonstrating. You guys are just there recreating and sunbathing.
5: You're just doing it in the nude. In other words, they're not giving any message at all. To are only giving the message they already know to themselves. So he thought that it had no standing uh, as far as using the First Amendment.
1: You know, and honestly, he was right. That was not the argument to use. Although other people have kind of tried it, it's never really worked for if you really want to just have a beach and enjoy it nude. So...
0: Well, it sounds like that was probably a good early lesson to have. Yeah. Obviously, I assume that meant that you lost access to Virginia Key.
1: Yeah, we did. We were like Jews wandering in the desert and looking for (laughs) nude beaches and places to go to be nude (laughs) and friends, uh, you know, members homes that have pools and hot tubs and we did go and visit some other beaches in the state, but and, and obviously just some of the clubs, but it wasn't the same as having a beach right in your, your neighborhood, your county.
5: At that time, uh, South Florida Free Beaches started meeting at the top of uh, two hotels in Surfside. We started having meetings there as a sun club and weekends, uh, occasionally uh, we could get enough people. And we started having events at people's homes. At that point, a lot of people were dropping out and the club was probably about to close. So we had a new president come in named Malika and she was a pretty sharp girl, you know, business-wise and everything. And she got Shirley and I to, to get on the board. I remember right, I became membership for he became Public Relations. Uh, we did a survey of all the members, uh, names of people we had in our records to find out what they wanted and what was the future of South Florida Free Beaches. We called over 300 people. And they all said the same thing. Well, we were on a beach. Uh, I don't want to go to someone's home. I don't want to be arrested, you know, and that kind of thing.
1: What they really wanted was a nude beach. And that was the mission of the organization anyway, so.
5: So we set out to get a beach. We called a meeting at our house and we put up a big whiteboard and I wrote the question on the whiteboard, is it legal to be nude on a public beach in Florida?
1: In about 89, Richard and I started researching in the law library at the University of Miami exactly why this would be illegal. It didn't make sense to me in my head that skinny dipping and nude sunbathing should be illegal. It, it didn't compute. And with me, if something doesn't make sense, I either have to research to find out what the rationale is behind it. And if it doesn't make sense, and no one's convinced me. Otherwise, I will be like a pit bull. (laughs) And that's exactly what we did. Had our original attorney gone another route and researched the law, he would have found out that the Supreme Court of Florida had ruled in 1971 that mere nudity, absent lewd lascivious behavior was not a violation of the law in the state.
5: Florida has two controlling state statutes that were being used against neuters. They're in the criminal code. One was Florida State Statute 803, which is actually for lewd and lascivious behavior and indecent exposure. Mm -hmm. So the police officer is determining that if you're merely nude, not doing anything sexual, that you are then lewd and lascivious and giving you a ticket and there was no one really knowing how to fight that Yeah, People would just plead no contest. And in Florida, if you get cited for 803, that'll destroy you. I mean, you'll never get a job if you, know, you get convicted or you plead no contest, which is a conviction, and they get you into a database, and you're dead. The other one was disorderly uh, conduct statute which is very over broad. It comes from slavery days and continues through Jim Crow. So the Dishadly the, the Conduct statue was being used against uh, nudists too, and uh, no one knew how to fight it. So basically, we started with those two statues. We had an attorney on the board, and he would say, look up this case, look up that case. Well, one of the cases was called the Goodmaker case. The Goodmaker was arrested uh, nude because he fell asleep on a dock somewhere, drunk, I guess. And uh, they arrested him for 803. Why he was nude, I don't know. But
1: (laughs) he was, and he was cited. And when they went to court, the interpretation of that statute was the guy was not trying
5: to be lewd and lascivious. He wasn't trying to provoke anybody. He was just merely nude and drunk and sleeping. So Goodmaker won that case, but it was in a lower court and it really had no standing in a more superior court. But the way that we found out the law works is you use what cases you have and hope for the best, you know. We looked at the Goodmaker case and we looked at what cases were referred to by the attorneys and when we went looked up those cases and those cases had other cases, it's called shepherdizing. So we started making photocopies of all these cases. And then we stumbled into other things, like number one, there was a case in Wisconsin where there was a nude beach up there and someone built a high-rise apartment building. And one of the men living in there would sit on the porch with his binoculars, looking at the nude people on the beach. His wife one day got curious and she picked up the binoculars and saw the nude people, called the police. The police came there and arrested the people, or ticketed them anyway. And the judge ruled that if nudity offends you, you cannot use a binocular to be offended. And that makes sense. So we took that case and put that in a binder. Then there was another case about signage. A Florida Power and Light meter reader came up to a fence backyard and had a sign that said, warning, bad dog, do not enter. He entered the yard to read the meter and he got bit. So he filed a lawsuit against the homeowner and the judge ruled that the lawsuit had no validity because the sign gave him warning and he didn't take the warning. So that gave signage standing. Each case we found that we could use, we put in a separate three-ring binder. There was another major case called the Osnac versus the city of Jacksonville. To me, it's the most important case that we nudists can use. And was a man who built a drive-in movie place. It's out in the suburbs. There's nothing around there. And like every other city around Florida, construction happened. And next thing you know, he's got apartment buildings and uh, other housing built around. And this woman complained to the authorities that when she looked out her window and she had children, uh, there was nudity on the screen. So she went to the city of Jacksonville and they try to shut him down so he went to court it ended up in the u.s supreme court
3: we'll hear arguments next in 73
2: 1942 there's Nonick against jacksonville
5: and basically the decision says that if you find nudity offensive you have an obligation to yourself to avert your eyes
3: many things such as scenes of horror and violence are more likely to distract than many of the fleeting shots of nudity that are barred by this ordinance.
5: We're doing this over months and we found we had a stack about three or four feet high of case law. Now we had to figure out which ones had case standing, which ones we could use and so on. We went to
1: a top, top attorney in South Florida. And he agreed with us.
5: And he said, well, first I want to tell you that I read the book and everything you put together is excellent. It it will help your case a lot. But you don't have a legal problem. You have a political problem.
1: He said if you bring a case, it would take years to bring it up through the system to go to the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court would more than likely not take it.
5: He said you need to educate the politicians, the elected officials who represent the people of what this case is. They don't know. They don't know what you have in this book, and if you do that, then you could be successful. He said, but if you win the battle, you're going to have to do it at, at the political level. So we gave us back our binder. He said, you did a good job. And then he said, you know who my clients are? And then he said, no. He said, well, we're the, uh, we're the law firm on record for Miami-Dade County and the city of my- Miami on maritime and shoreline issues. We, in effect, had given them our playbook. <laughs> well, uh, right? Ouch! But on the other hand, he agreed that we were right. You know, we walked away with the uh, with the knowledge that we were not criminals, and that w- that was very important to know because people being arrested or cited in Florida were being treated as criminals. So what we learned was the Fourteenth Amendment is the way to go. <laughs>
3: Congress passes the most sweeping civil rights bill ever to be written into the law and thus reaffirms the conception of equality for all men that began with Lincoln and the Civil War 100 years ago.
5: The 64 Civil Rights Act said you cannot discriminate against men and women in sports. And in the court cases defining that Civil Rights Act, even Scalia said the whole purpose is not to discriminate. So we were able to convince county commissioners that a beach is a beach and people who use a beach are recreating on the beach. We refer to it as recreation because that's what it really
1: is. And the government provides recreational areas and sports and boating and even boxing rings for kids to beat themselves up basketball, all that stuff. And it just made sense that since skinny dipping and nude sunbathing was our form of recreation, we just do it without those silly bathing suits.
5: So whether the beach, you need to wear a bottom or a bathing suit or a no bathing suit, there's still recreational facilities. And once we convince them of that, We started using the Civil Rights Act as our way of legitimizing the nude beach. So then we came up with the issue of the sign. And we said, well, if you put up this sign, there can be no complaints, because if someone walks onto this section of the beach and says, beyond this point, you will encounter nude sunbaters, and they go beyond that sign and were offended, they shouldn't have gone on the beach to be offended. So we pull out the court case on the Florida Power Life meter reader. In order to have standing as in a nude beach, you'd have to have a designated beach, you know, to put up the signs. So since the city or county or the state owns the beach, basically, we cannot put up a sign. They have to put it up. So, Shirley made an appointment with the attorney for the county police department. We laid out all the laws, left everything with them that we had, and the attorney for the police department wrote a memo to the police department stating that they could not arrest anyone for being merely nude on the beach unless they conducted themselves in an inappropriate way. They could not use 8- 803, the Lula Musivia statute, And they could not use the disorderly conduct statute. So now we had standing, but we were in a vacuum. Uh, We were told you could still be arrested, even though you, you can't be convicted, but possibly another type of conviction might come out of the court. So we said, well, we'll go back to the county attorney. And so we sat there and waited a couple of hours. and showed up and he said, Well, I can't talk to you. We don't have an appointment. She said, Look, I've been calling you. I've met with you several times over the last year. You know that it's perfectly legal in a designated area. And I've asked you to send a letter to the park director authorizing him to designate an area. And he said, Well, I've been instructed not to do that. His boss told him not to work with us. So Shirley said, Well, look. If you're not going to write the letter and the county's not going to designate the area, I'm going to designate it. He said, well, you can't designate an area. You can't designate a public beach. And she said, yes, I can. And she took out the U.S. Constitution and read the Tenth Amendment to it. The Tenth Amendment says, Where there's no federal law, no state law, and no county law, the law reverts back to the people. And we're the people. So she told them, said next Saturday is National Mood Weekend, we're going to be up on the beach and we're going to designate the beach.
0: did you guys pick Holover?
1: I was dead set against going to remote faraway places that had no services or amenities. I had my daughter and we certainly didn't want to be schlepping her around to faraway remote places. that didn't even have bathrooms. I mean how uncivilized.
5: <laughs> now Holover Beach Park is two miles long and the northern one-third mile was like abandoned. It was just bare beach. The
1: park itself, it's on two sides of a highway. The highway is A1A. They also call it Collins Avenue, which runs the entire length of the beach. And it seemed that the only part that wasn't being used was the very north end. They had no lifeguard towers up there. It was just this open, pristine area. They did have a bathroom.
5: But people didn't really use that beach very much because there was no parking on the opposite side. All over has about 2,500 or more parking spaces. So people would park and walk through tunnels south of the new beach. So people would park, walk through a tunnel and be on a mile and two thirds of beach. So there was no need for anyone using the beach that we now use, because you'd have to carry your stuff all the way up there. That made no sense to anyone.
1: Unfortunately, that was also an area where a lot of undesirables hung out. People got robbed. There was inappropriate
5: sexual activity in the bushes. They would throw bottles at the lifeguards and the gang was going on. And the police would show up, sometimes with a helicopter, and they fly the helicopter sideways and blow sand at everybody. But it was not a safe beach. You wouldn't go there. So in our picking a uh, hollow as a possible site, we went and met with the lifeguard service and they were telling us all the problems with the area. And we figured, well, you know, if we put a couple hundred people on there, we'll take care of ourselves. And
1: so when we told the park department that we were going to start using that end of the beach, they said, you really shouldn't do that because we can't protect you up there. There's all these bad things going on. I said, don't worry, we'll clean it up. You know, and I gave them beach etiquette and how naturists, you know, take care of the environment. And so um, after meeting with different authorities, we just gave them our legal information and told them, if you don't agree with this and you can show us where we would be breaking the law, tell us now because we're going to start using it on the weekend of the 14th of July, 1991. They admitted we were right, but the attorney for the Parks Department wouldn't tell his people that was his legal opinion. And I said, well, if you come up there and arrest us, we'll have to sue you. (laughs) And Uh, uh, so they did not arrest us. They left us alone.
5: So that's how we picked all over. And so what did that look like? There's
0: a leap of faith, I imagine. You just sort of put out signs.
5: Well, we put up our own little signs. We had these signs on little steel stakes that said, beyond this point, you may encounter nude sunbaters. And we put them in the sand, so people walking back and forth would see them. And Shirley walked down the path, took off falls and said, I designate this as a nude beach under the US Constitution, something like that. And everybody just stood there no one did anything. And there was about 20 or 30 members of South Florida Free Beaches present and they all took off their clothing. Park manager drove up.
1: They said you can't put up signs and I said well what do you mean we can put their signs on chairs you know
5: umbrellas. And said so you can't put private signs in on public scene. <laughs> so we sent someone up to Walgreens and they bought four beach chairs and came down and we put the beach chairs down and we put the signs on the beach chairs. Sure. They backed off and we stayed there for a few hours and left. And then we went back the next weekend nude and we just kept going back nude and notified everybody on our list. Soon grew. We were doing it on first on just Sundays and then Saturday and Sundays. And then people that worked in the hospitality industry said, Why can't we do this on Thursday? And my day off. So we started doing it three days.
1: My husband and I would drive, literally drive. I think it was like a 40 mile round trip from where we lived to take signs up there and we'd set up an information table and you know and just do what was necessary to make our people feel comfortable and we, we literally cleaned up the beach, figuratively and literally got rid of the bad element and it just grew from there.
0: What did that look like? you you have to chase people off the beach or let them know they weren't
5: welcome there? Part of our negotiation with the county was that we would have Beach Ambassadors. We had a couple of people that were retired. So we got these safari-type hats and painted them turquoise green and put Beach Ambassador on them.
1: The Beach Ambassador Program was formed to have formal education for volunteers. They learn about the law. They learn about places to go, people to network with. And it's a combination, I would say, Welcome Wagon, and Concierge Service, and Crime Watch. The bathroom was one of the hangouts for the undesirables. And so we would put up little signs inside the bathrooms. And when our people would go in there, they would, you know, tell them we're not putting up with this and we're going to call the police and so forth. A lot of it was scare tactics and uh, across the street where the parking lot was, a lot of these people would park and go into the bushes over there, and they were always trying to pick up naturists that were going to our section of the beach, and it just got tiresome. So we did a lot of funny things. We got a megaphone and one of those sirens, like the police, and <laughs> <laughs> we'd call, up, okay, you perverts, get out of there.
2: <laughs>
5: <laughs> and we scared the shit out of everybody. We didn't want people having sex in the parking lot, and then it gets blamed on Halloween.
1: We had to try to make it like a game, but we cleaned it up.
5: We started out with a couple hundred feet, and we kept growing, going north and south as the crowd grew, and we ended up with three thousand feet of beach after about a year or so.
0: What are some other ways you guys improved the beach?
1: They didn't even have lifeguard stands when we started. We had to do things to kind of get the county to take responsibility for having all these people on the beach. We'd have like eight, 900, a 1,000 people on our section of the beach and no lifeguard stands. South of
5: the new beach, there were 12 lifeguard structures.
1: We called a friend of ours who had a helicopter service and we videotaped from like South Beach all the way up to the county line.
5: And we counted the number of people at each tower and they averaged about eight people each like a tower. And then we
1: counted the people at our end and it was visually, uh, you could see.
5: We had over 880 people on the beach and no power.
1: This is where all the people are, and there's no lifeguard stands. And so we wrote a letter to the parks and said, if someone drowns in this park, we will give them a copy of this videotape. And
5: they're gonna end up suing the county for negligence because we have 880 people and no lifeguard.
1: Well, within like a day, day and a half, they were pulling these lifeguard stands onto our beach. Wow we had to do the same thing for the parking lot
5: about a year before we occupied hollower the beach had been renourished and uh, we were talking to the manager of the park and he said well you know we just screwed the federal government and uh, how did that happen you know yeah
1: the federal government had given the county money for beach renourishment
5: and the uh, agreement was... The federal government will pay 80% of the cost of the renourishment, but the state of Florida would pay 10% and the county would pay 10%.
1: We'll help you renourish your beaches, but you have to have public access.
5: To get the 80%, they've got to agree to have a certain number of parking spaces per lineal foot of beach and access from that parking space to the beach. Uh, There was no parking near the beach. Opposite the nude beach, across the A1A, the state highway, on the other side was a large maintenance yard of the county, just piles of dirt and weeds and so on. So that was the area the county had agreed to turn into a parking lot
1: they didn't want us using that parking lot because it was the closest to our nude beach.
5: Between that parking lot and the beach, there was a tunnel under the highway, but the tunnel was blocked up with cement blocks.
1: So we got in touch with the Army Corps of Engineers and told them the county wasn't letting us use the parking lot.
5: So the Army Corps of Engineers sent a letter to the county telling them either put in the parking lot or send us $5 million. So that was the fastest parking lot ever built in Florida.
1: (laughs) And so now we had a new parking lot closest to the nude beach and...
5: Amazing. But then they wouldn't open the, the tunnel. And so our people were parking in the lot, walking over A1A, which is very dangerous and coming down on the beach and so we then had the same person on our board write a letter to the army corps of engineers then the army corps of engineers wrote to the county telling them they need to open the tunnel one of the other obstacles you know of many that we went through
1: We had to get involved with the Disabled Veterans of Florida because some of our members were disabled veterans, okay? And it's always been a concern of mine because of people that I grew up with that were not able to enjoy outdoor areas and recreation to the fullest extent because of the limitations that were put upon them that could have easily have been fixed. Basically, 15 years after the federal government passed the ADA, Hullover Parks was still not ADA accessible. And we had been complaining about that for a number of years. And so, getting the Paralyzed Veterans of Florida to work with us, they finally got it after being threatened to be sued, <laughs> which always seems to get people's attention. <laughs>
0: Yeah, I guess it
1: would. <laughs> yeah. Sometimes you have to call in outside helpers to get the job done. But we have the most beautiful handicap ramp now going under A1A. And we must have at least 40 handicap parking spaces right there at the entrance to the tunnel. But they haven't done any of the other tunnels Throughout the park, mm. which I'm very annoyed
5: at. Everything has been a struggle. We had a fight for permission to put up bulletin boards, and then Shirley raised the money and built a shower in uh, four chicky huts, like the Seminole Indians build, for shade. So, everything on that beach, we had a fight for, and even though we accomplished it, it was never automatically given to us.
0: What were some of the attempts, legislative attempts to ban nudity in Tallahassee?
1: It really kind of started up at Canaveral National Seashore, where a few of their churches were working in concert with the superintendent at Playa Linda Beach, introducing an anti-nudity bill that would stop nude use on their beach, but in beaches in general. So we had to fight that with our little ragtag group of organized beach activists. And, you know, I have to tell People occasionally look, I beat the radical religious right in this state. <laughs> <laughs> I can beat you too. <laughs> yeah, I
0: and mean, we're talking about Florida. That's quite a. <laughs> quite yes. a
1: Yeah, we had about five years that we were battling them. During that time, several of the counties were passing anti-nudity ordinances, mostly because they were trying to get rid of the nude nightclubs. So they were trying to lump us all in as one. And actually, the nude nightclubs won out because they had First Amendment rights. Um, But, you know we were kind of left out there to battle for
5: ourselves. Uh, these audience started breaking out all over the place. And so now I find myself running around the state, going to different counties, opposing anti nuity laws. The first one in Florida was in St. John's County, which is where the city of St. Augustine is. And so I decided to go to the public hearing. So I drove up to St. Augustine, rented a room, and the public hearing was the next day, five o'clock, I think it was. We get there at four thirty, and the place is surrounded with police officers, and we're told we can't go in this building because all the seats were full. It held five or six hundred people, and what happened was the Christian right groups, all the Pentecostals, we found out that the parking lot was full of their buses. And what they did, they got there early, were let in the back door, took up all the seats. So they prevented the real public from expressing any opinion on this ordinance. So I went and got the attorney for the county. and He agreed to let us in the diaper changing room. So three of us got in the diaper changing room. We couldn't see what was going on, but they started the hearing. There was one partisan minister after another speaking for 20, 30 minutes each about the evils of nudity and Adam and Eve and the Bible. And this went on to one o'clock in the morning. At one o'clock, I was my turn to speak. So I go up there and they want my name and address. The minute I met, gave the address in Miami, the crowd went crazy, Scott yelling, devil worshipers. So I held up a sign I had and said, happiness is no can lines. Everybody started screaming at me. And one of the uh, county commissioners said, you got two minutes, the clock was turning. I said, all these other people had 10, 20, 30 minutes each. He said, the clock is turning. So I spoke and the two people I was with, they each spoke. I went back first to the diaper changing room. The three guys came in there they were like very large men with beards and hair looked like out of the woods of kentucky or someplace and they said you're a devil worshiper and if you ain't out of this town by sunup they're, they're gonna find you hanging from a tree i said you got to be kidding and they started yelling at me and screaming and there was a sheriff deputy outside the door and he was listening so i said to the deputy uh look uh heard what these guys say they're threatening to hang me in a tree he just walked away i thought i heard him say it sounded like a good idea to him you know and then the other two guys came back from talking and we left i got up in the morning and went to a restaurant and a guy came over to me and said are you the guy that spoke out against an ordinance uh, last night it was on television and i said uh, yeah he said what are you doing in town he said if i happened to be there when they were plotting to hang you you, you would have been hung from a tree i said you've got to be shitting me you know he said if i was you i'd get in the car and get the hell out of town but i stayed and had breakfast and then drove out of there but that's how serious it was with these people so-called christians
1: wow
0: What did you learn from that?
1: We learned that if you talk to these politicians before the legislative sessions, <laughs> you'd get a lot further than if you tried to kill an existing bill that people had already sponsored and signed on to. Natris cannot be in the closet. All right. They're going to have to speak up one way or the other if they want their rights.
0: I mean, speaking of not being in the closet, uh, with so many groups trying to shut you down, how did you guys control or manage the narrative with all over with the media?
1: We were very careful to try to keep the media out. And when they did come, they were more invited. And it was on special occasions, like anniversaries, We would have press kits and and literally walk with them around the beach to talk to people because, you know, natures are naturally camera shy. And so it was important that, you know, we manage the media as best we could.
0: I understand the sort of struggles to win over the government and the administrators and the people that are making these choices. But what about the local economy and the community, you know, the business leaders and the, obviously the tourism industry? Clearly, with those thousands of people visiting your beach, you had a positive effect there. What did that look like?
1: We joined the local hotel associations, and you know the Miami Beach Chamber of Commerce. They were really instrumental in helping us fight the anti-nudity bills in Tallahassee because they would say, "Yeah, you're trying, you're hurting our business," and you know that always goes over well with legislator lawmakers. <laughs> you know, sure. the Forget the the little people, but hey, if you're hurting business, that's another story. (laughs) Uh, And yeah, by us joining and participating and educating these hoteliers and the chambers, it, it really did help us. Also, it was South Florida Free Beaches that got the city of Miami Beach to accept top free women. And that was like the impetus that really helped uh, South Beach to become the tourist mecca that it is today.
0: How did the Beaches Foundation come about?
5: Well, one of the things that we had to do in order to build the shower and the chicky huts, uh, the county did not want to work with South Florida Free Beaches because we were not a 501c3 and we were politically active. So, Shirley formed a 501c3 called Beaches Foundation, which then allowed that organization to work directly with the county.
1: BEACHES is an acronym for Beach Education Advocates for Culture, Health, Environment, and Safety. Hmm. Foundation Institute. <laughs> okay. It was important to, in dealing with the county because they have their rules. They had a, what's called a program partnership or nonprofit organizations that sponsor things like sports teams for kids and all that. We were kind of an outlier <laughs> from what they had been used to working with, but because of our beach ambassador program and how very helpful that was to the county employees, they found this as you know an ideal kind of way to work with us. South Florida Free Beaches is more the political arm. Beaches is educational to take care of our facilities. Beaches generally doesn't get involved in the political stuff. However, in trying to get the wording in 803 that clearly would delineate and exempt people sunbathing and skinny dipping at nude beaches, beaches led that effort and brought in the other beach groups. And it then led to our current effort challenging the DEP anti-nudity rule that was enacted not by the legislature, but by the Department of Environmental Protection and the former Governor Martinez cabinet back in the mid-80s. That shut down our most popular nude beaches on state park land. And now we're trying to get them to take out their anti-nudity rule and have it comport with the state statute, which says an area is set apart, therefore, blah, blah, blah.
0: And what does that decline look like? I mean, at one point there were significantly more nude beaches i understand
1: yeah they shut down all of these nude beaches that happened in the mid 80s over 35 years going back to the 60s and 70s there were a hundred places that you could skinny dip in florida without a problem and between development, which always loves to be on the beach, you know, and them passing anti-nudity ordinances in counties and cities where these beaches were located, we lost those places. And now there's just going from the north to the south, there's Apollo Beach, Playa Linda Beach, Blind Creek Beach, and Holover Beach. Wow. Just four. That's it. Uh, I mean, there's other places somebody might be able to get away with skinny dipping, but they're never safe. And we advocate for safe, well-managed, family-designated clothing-optional beaches. We're not looking to be everywhere, but we need a hell of a lot more than four.
0: <laughs> that is wild. Yeah. Yeah. Oliver is the model. You guys wrote the roadmap.
5: The secret is uh, giving people hope. And I think what's happened over the years, uh, people have been beat down, beat down, they get discouraged and give up. And if you you sculpture your effort to fit within what's legal, it gives people hope. And the secret between success and failure is hope.
0: that's definitely one reason why I'm excited to be talking to you and trying to collect this story and put it out there so that people can hear it. If nothing else, hopefully it'll inspire some folks. Certainly I'm leaving a little bit inspired. I'm just so grateful to you and Shirley both for sharing this all with me.
5: Thank you very much for the interview and for your interest in it. Thank you. I enjoyed
1: this.
0: Following the leadership of the Masons and South Florida Free Beaches, activists roughly 100 miles north of Miami, in Port St. Lucie, established a legal nude beach at Blind Creek Beach. The beach had been used unofficially by skinny dippers for years, but in 2014, this passionate group of beachgoers formed a nonprofit group called the Treasure Coast Naturists. Just like Shirley and Richard had done, The group approached St. Lucie County officials with a wealth of economic data and Florida statutes supporting their argument that nude sunbathing on the beach was not illegal and in fact was economically fruitful to have in the community. Luckily, law enforcement saw it the same way, and since then beachgoers have been free to swim nude on the beach without the threat of harassment from police. In 2020, the St. Lucie County Commission officially designated Blind Creek Beach clothing optional by resolution and by ordinance. And the county is now in the process of building permanent restrooms. The Treasure Coast Naturists built their approach after the haulover model. The group maintains a presence on the beach, working with city and county governments, supporting the beach, and informing the visitors who pass through. I'll include links to all of these groups in the show notes but you can specifically support South Florida Free Beaches at sffb.com and the Beaches Foundation at beachesfoundation.org. As a final note, Mariana Handler, the beach mom of San Onofre, who we mentioned in the introduction to this episode, passed away earlier this year in 2022. Members of her family, including her daughter Maureen, scattered her ashes in the waters off the coast of Holover Beach. This episode of Naked Age was co produced by Shannon Lewis and included music sourced from the Free Music Archive under a Creative Commons license. The theme song was composed by me, Evan Nix. Please see the show notes for detailed credits. Special thanks to Martin Navoa, Shirley Mason, Richard Mason, Shannon Lewis, Arden Williams, Phineas Baxendahl. Maureen Handler, Timothy Sargent, Carl Hild, the Beaches Foundation, the Western Nudist Research Library, and the Anner Education Foundation. You can listen to past episodes of Naked Age or read the Behind the Episode blog at nakedage.co. You can also connect with me on Twitter at NakedAgePod. Thanks for listening. The next episode of Naked Age, Rock Lodge Barry shares his secret for fitting in as a nudist.
4: We started wearing shorts during the day so that we'd get a tan line because this way when we would go swimming nude at the Y at home during the winter, we wouldn't be questioned about why we didn't have a tan line.
0: The double life of a lifelong nudist, plus the big bang of American nudism, coming soon to Naked Age.